Hi, I'm Karen Derricades, and you're listening to We Make Media, a podcast about how the culture we produce shapes media and how that goes both ways. Hi, you're listening to We Make Media, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Quentin Versetti, an award-winning, art-making, chess-playing, lock-swinging, community-building, space-traveling, contemporary griot, as well as new media artist and educator. Quentin creates holographic projections, digital renderings, paper and digital collage, frame animations, and really so much more. He's worked with community organizations, corporate businesses, and other artists, and has traveled the world sharing his visions. I've asked him to talk to me today about artivism, how Afrofuturism facilitates time travel, and how to create loving communities on and offline. Hi, Quentin. How are you doing? How you doing? I'm great. Great. Um, let's get right into it. Can you tell uh, folks a bit about Afrofuturism and speculative art movements uh, in general uh, for folks who might not be familiar with that, but also specifically how you situate your work within those? Yeah, absolutely. So Afrofuturism is about Afrocentric narratives that are focused on connecting the past, present, and future together and engages with science, technology, engineering, arts, mathematics, and metaphysics. And essentially, it's a Pan-African arts movement. And right now, it's really about engaging our minds to how can we make the world a better place and how can we also create holistic and sustainable living on planet Earth. And of course, if we're looking at it from a science fiction standpoint, then other places as well. And so in terms of my work, the way it's situated is I use it as an educational tool and uh, I engage with these ideas around holistic practices around Afrofuturism. So I'm connecting ideas from ancient Africa and bringing it into a modern and also into a science fiction standpoint where it exists and uh, engages with future ideas. And so for me, this brings community together because it helps to bridge a gap between those who are disconnected from their roots and then those who are disconnected from the earth mm. and then those who are still trying to figure out where they situate themselves as the world is changing. Can you give us an example of one of those histories? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the big popular ones in regards to these histories is comedic yoga. So right now we see yoga being a really popular practice amongst a lot of people. And oftentimes what is forgotten about in major yoga practices is how we practice yoga or how we practice these healthy ways of being with other people. And then another part is also how do we practice healthy ways of being with the earth. So in comedic yoga, it really focuses on nature and it really focuses on how do we breathe with other people. So it really focuses on the breath more than just stretching the body. So it, it really allows one to step outside of the self. Whereas yoga and a lot of practices that we see, it really focuses on just the person themselves and it allows it to be only an individual practice and not a community practice. Interesting. And so in some of my collage work, you'll see people doing yoga outside with other people in our marketplace, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this sense of peace, even in the midst of chaos. Mm, I love that. Beautiful. Yeah. What is artivism? Where did you come to know and 
experience the intersections of that that art and social justice piece. Absolutely. So I first heard of artivism from Karis One, mm. who is a rapper, and his name means knowledge reigns supreme over nearly everyone. And uh, he first was the person I heard speak about artivism. And um, for him, those two worlds are not separate. You know, art always has a political statement. Even if you want it to be apolitical, that's still political. And so when you are speaking to social issues, then you're now being an advocate for something. Now you are taking a responsibility, you're taking accountability. And so for him, he believes that art should always exists in that function and should be intentional. Right. And so for me, because my work came out of a space of healing and because it came out of a place of trying to reconnect to my own personal roots, but then also help other people to do the same, naturally it just took up a, a space of being um, engaging with social issues and being about activism and really being about advocating for certain things that need to be changed in society from systemic oppression to uh, gender violence, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so the list goes on. Mm-hmm. A perfect way to talk about iconoclasm. For those who aren't familiar with the term, you know, iconoclasm is the breaking of icons. There was a docu-series called Iconoclasts. There was this great episode with uh, Dave Chappelle and Maya Angelou, and she kind of adds another layer to it, which is just that iconoclasm is really the creating of new icons at the same time of breaking old icons, right? So engaging in that process of questioning what are the values that we monumentalize like as a society and then replacing those with ones that aren't harmful so the big component of my work is looking at monuments and i reimagine colonial monuments that exist and try to make them more inclusive because one of the big problems with these monuments that especially in the city of toronto and in canada and just many other places as well is a lot of these monuments pay tribute to murderers, you know, pay tribute to really oppressive figures, you know, war mongrels, you know, colonial generals, Confederate agents, slave owners, et cetera, et cetera, you know, Winston Churchill. Cornwallis, yeah. Yep. John A. MacDonald. One of the things I realized in my travels was in a lot of places, especially places where indigenous uh, ways of living is still, is really respected and revered we see representations of them in the landscape. And I found it really interesting that in Canada, there is a lack of representation in the landscape of indigenous people and of black people. So I take on the Afrofuturist lens of, because I love Marvel, and I always thought, okay, let's say Thanos, Mm. if you know people know who Thanos is, hopefully they do by now. Uh, (laughs) If you haven't watched Endgame Avengers, but let's say Thanos erased more than half of the world, right? When people come to visit Canada, they're gonna they're not gonna realize that black people existed here because you don't see us in the landscape. There's no physical, there's very few physical representations of what we look like. And also our contributions to the Canadian history and to the Canadian landscape outside of being slaves, which is not our history here in Canada. And so one of the big things I learned that really made me become interested in this idea of monuments being tools for the future is the story of Matthew DaCosta. And Matthew DaCosta was the first documented African in North America who was not a slave. 
And he came here in 1605. The first slave came in 1619. So meaning that he was here decades before the first African enslaved person came to our shores. He was a translator. Matthew de Costa was a translator for Samuel du Champlain and for many of the early French explorers who are considered the forefathers of Canada. And uh, he's actually attributed to being one of the people who translated the term Canada. So it's crazy because in Montreal, there's a street called St. Matthew, named after him. But there's no monuments. But yet there's tons of monuments of Samuel du Champlain. There's tons of monuments of uh, Pierre and all these other uh, explorers who came. Um, but there's no representations of his contribution as being a liaison or being, sorry, for being the bridge for the indigenous population and for the European settlers. But what's really interesting about him is that Matthew de Costa came here with his own ship. So the speculation aspect for me is that means he must have came here before the French in order for him to know the language of the indigenous people. He's documented knowing over 12 languages and they don't know how many languages that he spoke within the African dialect and within the indigenous uh, dialect. So he was a very talented linguist who came here with his own ship and his own crew of black people. So there's a whole history of, of uh, black people in Canada who are essentially helped to form Canada that is not represented in the landscape. And so for me, I use the term technofossil. Mm. Um, and technofossil just means any man-made thing that's created, object that's created, that stores data. And so for me, monuments are exactly that. They store information, they store the data, they store the histories, the stories, the values of society. But now to bring it all back together, <laughs> if there are no monuments of African Canadians or Canadians of African descent, then that means society is not aware in the future of our contributions, our value, and, and our stories, you know, that is a part of Canadian history and world history at, at that. Once again, for me, I use this in my art to teach these lessons, you know, and uh, so I make digital 3D renderings of monuments that I feel like need to be represented in the landscape, you know, so I represent more importantly, young people. Mm. And I represent young people because oftentimes we don't celebrate youth who are making good decisions, you know. We often celebrate, you know, adults who might have turned their lives around, who may have made a lot of bad decisions and they made one great decision, you know, but we don't celebrate those who are in the process and who are continuing to uh, make good decisions, you know. And so for me, it's like, what better way to speak to the future than to represent those who are for the future mm. and those who are going to be occupying the future with our young people, right? Not these old farts. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. How do you know this stuff? How do you source and surface these things that have been systematically buried and, you know, written over top of? So, I mean, I would say I started from just learning more about my own personal history. So learning about my parents, grandparents, great grandparents, and then learning about the environment that they grew up in and then asking a lot of questions. And in asking those questions, that's when I realized I realized the direction I needed to go to do the research. So I realized at a certain point, our history gets cut off in the Caribbean, right? And I was like, okay, well, where do I go from here? Well, what part of 
our story survived. Well, the main thing that I looked at was the plants, the food that we eat. Why do Jamaicans eat Aki and nobody else in the Caribbean eats it? Even though Aki grows in all of the Caribbean. Okay, where does the Aki tree come from? It comes from Ghana. How did the Aki tree end up in Jamaica? Okay, I have questions. And then I start learning about that. And then I start learning more about the people who lived around that. And then, you know, and so just asking questions that allowed me to start doing research in certain very specific areas. But, you know, I really thank the Internet, of course, because I, I often will pose my questions to the Internet and people will share with me a lot of resources. And then a key thing for me is whenever I find a resource, I now know that a resource always has more resources within it, you know. And so I always check references. And that has always been um, a really big thing for me. Helped to foster the growth for me in terms of learning more and more. And the main thing for me, really, in terms of learning about my family history, is I had a really close relationship with my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, before he passed away. And he used to tell me tons of stories, and he had a great memory before he passed away. And so he would tell me all the stories about, like, you know, his great-grandfather, who, who directly came from Africa as, a, as an enslaved African. And so that really like, allowed me to also have a direction to look, right? So my great-grandfather was Ewe, and Ewe people come from Benin. But we find a lot of Ewe people today in Ghana. So then it started to make me look into that, that history. Did you ever have the experience where your grandfather or family member had an answer to one of your questions and there was a gap, like when you went to go look for it online, that there was nothing? All the time. And that's where the speculation part comes in. Because, for example, at the time that I was looking into my family history, there was no documentation to show how many ever people came through Ghana. And how did people, how did every people from Benin and Togo end up in Ghana. Like there is no his, there is no documentation to that. Now there's slave there's slave voyage. There's a website that kind of gives you a little glimpse into it, but that's where the speculation part really comes in. Another aspect is there's no scientific proof of how seeds survive the middle passage of slavery to be able to be planted and grow and flourish in the Caribbean. Scientists have said this is impossible. And so that's where the imagination goes wild, mm. essentially, to fill in those gaps. That's amazing. Yeah. When you came to the piece about the, the footnotes, the liner notes, each resource leading to another resource, like more so the question I find sometimes with working with young people is how to get them to know about that process. What or who taught you to do that following back the path of the roots or of the source that you found? Definitely, I will have to give that credit to where credit due. Uh, I give the credit to my uncles, who are who are Rastas. And uh, for them, this idea of returning back to Africa has to also, doesn't necessarily always have to be a physical one, but it always has to be a mental. And so the mental aspect of returning back to Africa is, is just returning back to a place where you're knowledgeable. And in order to do so, you have to study to show yourself approved. That's what they like to say. And so amongst Rastas, there's a there's a thing we call reasoning, you know, or, or, or grounding, you know. And you can't talk in a grounding if you don't have a reference point. 
to what you're talking about. And so the whole idea of like paying attention to references, knowing your references, the linear notes, the footnotes, all these different things, is knowing how to be a part of the larger conversation. So then you can now add your input in the reasoning, in the grounding. And so I think art really allows for that to happen, especially collage work, which is why I love it, which is why I use it as a teaching tool. Because then you have to understand why you're piecing these things together and what's the conversation that's happening. You know, so if I make a collage from a newspaper, which I've done a lot of times within prisons, and uh, prisoners love cutting out the images of people in power and replacing their heads with something else. Maybe it might be a word, might be maybe it might be like, you know, a picture of, a, of an animal or something, like, you know. And it's like, what is the conversation that you're trying to have here? And it's like, it's always a political statement that relates back to a deeper narrative around systems of power, right? And uh, systemic oppression, right? And so then now that's their reason. And now that's a, that's a bigger conversation that we can have. And then I encourage them now to back it up with more information that will deepen their concept. So then they might talk about animal farm. Then they might talk about, like, you know, all these different things, 1984, like, you know, so there's all these different reference points that allows them to now bring a deeper wisdom and understanding to the conversation. I realize how cool that is, right? It's really cool. It's really interesting. And it also just really allows you to be original and really create something that's that's genuine to your spirit and to your energy. And in Afrofuturism, that's what it's all about, right? Like remixing, sampling, all these different things are important fabrics of what makes the larger kilt, you know, or the larger kente cloth, for example, you know. But then the way you put things together, the sequences, is then allowing you to now create a quilt that's unique to yourself, you know, unique to your family, unique to, yeah, it's a new thing. But then now it enlarges how we understand the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a new thing, but it's also imbued with all of these references from where it came, from the new context that you put it in, just putting out visions and narratives and messages in the world that you want to see proliferated and spread and amplified. So can you tell me about what it means for you to call yourself content creator? I don't like the term, and I try my best to avoid it. But when I do call myself a content creator, I usually add very specific adjectives and descriptive elements before the content creator. So I'll be like Afrofuturistic content creator or artivism content creator. Yeah, the reason is because within this age of abundance and information and uh, in this age of the internet, people are just creating, 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 and it's not always cohesive. It's not always with purpose. It's not always conceptual. And the intent is not always there. Like, you know, like the intent might just be to create content or just to have something for people to engage with or just to say that you created something. And so for me, I also often see it when people just create random things. And I see this a lot within the digital art world and in the art world amongst a lot of artists, um, artists who just create artwork of celebrities, et cetera, et cetera, which is no... Shout to them, like, you know, everyone to each their own. That's just not my cup of tea, you know? So when I say, when I add these little descriptive things before content creator, it's just so, someone will be like, oh, so what do you create? 
I create Afrofuturistic work. The content I'm creating has a really specific function and it's 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 not niche, it's not uh, random, it's not incoherent or it's not, you know, arbitrary. It's within a collection of work that's speaking to a very specific area and has a very specific function. And so that's that's my intent behind it. But yeah, most great. of the time when people say it to me, it's like, oh, you just don't get what I'm making. That's what, that's how I take it. When someone's like, oh, you have a lot of content, it's like, oh, you don't see that this all is one narrative. Before we move on to some of the nitty gritty of making the work, tell us a little bit about this uh, amazing Monument Lab uh, transnational fellowship that you're going to be involved in. Yeah, so that that is an extension of my already existing work with uh, monuments, digital monuments and virtual monuments. Uh, the hope is to create a real monument, which we'll see, you know. Oh, so I forgot to mention that Toronto is the only city, only city in the world, like world-class city, only major city in the world that doesn't have a monument of a black person in it. Wow. The only city in the world. Hong Kong got one. Tokyo got one. London got one. <laughs> like, Paris Tokyo got Tokyo and Toronto. What? Yeah. So I would love to be, if possible, be the first one or at least be involved in the process. Do you have an idea of who that would be a monument to yet or that's still percolating? Uh, there's a monument being worked on for Joshua Glover, which I don't think is a good idea, to be honest. I've, I've been vocalized about it. Joshua Glover was a runaway slave from Wisconsin. He basically got rescued by abolitionists and then was snuck into Canada. And unfortunately, though, his story in Canada continues to be about hardship and how he had to he had to face a lot of uh, racial discrimination here in Canada. And so it's kind of weird that they want to make the monument, the first Toronto monument about this this gentleman who's not from Canada, uh, though he settled in Canada and, and lived, had family here and stuff. I think Jean Augustine would be a perfect person. First black woman in parliament, she initiated Black History Month and now is trying to push to change it to Black Legacy Month. You know, she's done tremendous things for the community, the black community, and, and just for immigrants and, and for people in general. She's still a living legend, still very much involved, not only because she's a good friend of mine, but because she's really invested in what youth people are doing and uh, is really invested in just like really making sure that we, when I say we, I mean people within the black community or the black collective, as we call it, can see themselves in spaces of influence um, as it deals with policies and politics. And so I think she should be the first monument. It, it really just comes down to policies and policy makers, which once again goes back to Jean Augustine. We need more, not even just more black people, but just people who are thinking inclusive, right? And people who understand the actual value of just like, not just patting yourselves on the back, you know? And, and not tokenizing and really think about the future, like what are the implications that you're trying to give to the future? If the first group of black people in Toronto weren't slaves, why is the first monument in Toronto going to be about a runaway slave? What are your implications? What are the values that you're putting out? You know? So much, yeah. What are the stories that you're trying to preserve? Is this the first Where program of its kind? It's the first international program. They did it before, they did it once before, but it was just concentrated. 
to a couple of cities. This is the first time it's transnational. And was the visit to Berlin and DC and stuff going to involve actually visiting monuments? So no. So okay. So everyone has their own idea of what monuments are and what monuments should be. And so essentially, on a basic level, it's a tribute to something, right? So when we did the exhibition here in Toronto uh, called Monuments for New Cities, it was amazing, actually, to see the different ideas and different approaches and different and different representations and tributes to monuments. Uh, for example, in some indigenous folks had just a picture of the water. And it's like, honoring the water is a monument. And respecting and making sure that it's continue to be pure and to be healthy for nature is a monumental act, you know? And so that was like, whoa, that was like, oh my gosh. And so another one was a person took a picture of the gardener under construction. And I didn't realize, I didn't learn, I didn't know until that moment, until the exhibit that the gardener was actually named after Fred Gardner, super racist person, bigot, who was like wealthy and used his influence and wealth at the time to have the highway made after him. He completely removed communities and restructured uh, the whole lakefront and the whole downtown Toronto, polluted the water in doing so, to just have this, the one piece of the highway to run downtown and to be named after him. And uh, it was even discussed at the time of making it a toll road, which we're glad that he didn't, even though they were talking about doing it again. Yeah, so different things of monuments, right? So it's like this idea of like this highway that we drive over all the time that creates all this pollution and congestion in our city, uh, in the city of Toronto, is a monument. You know, so that was kind of blew my mind because I always thought of monuments as uh, to particular people, you know, and uh, representational in terms of figurative. So in this uh, fellowship, we're all kind of like engaging different ways that we engage community around the ideas of monuments. And so for me, I'm engaging community around the ideas of missing monuments, right? So I call them black technofossils, the missing black technofossils, right? So what are the stories that are missing from the public narrative? And how do we, how do we create them? How do we challenge the ones that already exist? And uh, how do we potentially fight for the ones that we feel like need to exist. And so I had a series of workshops that I wanted to do, and I had a series of augmented virtual reality monuments that I wanted to create. Um, I wanted people to engage with and get their feedback and just kind of collect data, because, you know, within the academic structure and within this realm, data collection is important. Qualitative and quantitative research is important. So, yeah, so that was my idea for my monument lab. Very cool. Can you tell me a bit more about the augmented? Uh, yeah, because I wanted to talk to you about just tools and platforms and emerging technologies and stuff that might be, you know, exciting you at the moment. So the augmented reality, the idea was in very specific places in Montreal and Toronto, because I'm currently living in Montreal. I wanted to take the monuments that exist in spaces of black historical moments and indigenous moments, like where uh, Angelique Joseph lived, where Angelique Joseph is the person who burned down old Montreal, right? And uh, I wanted to take those places and the monuments that are there and reimagine them in an augmented way as an Afrofuturistic monument, 
maybe contributed to Angelique Joseph's descendants, you know, or those who are carrying on her legacy. So wrapping digital works around physical sites or physical objects or whatever. Yeah. Very cool. But now I have to rethink this because of the whole quarantine lockdown thing. So this is also where the, I'm glad I had a virtual reality aspect because then it's like, I can just 3D scan the area and then just create a virtual version of the experience, which you can then maybe engage with it on your phone, you know, while you're at home. What does that actually look like for you when you are exploring um, AR and VR? What, what are you making those in? And, and yeah, what's that process? So right now I'm learning Unity and Unreal Engine, which uh, is quite the learning curve. But prior to that, I was using um, a program called Cinema 4D. I mean, the great thing about it for listeners is it's free, you know, if you're not using it for yes. commercial means. That's the that's the great thing about uh, Unity, Unreal. The bad thing is that it's like mind-blowingly difficult. It crashes computers. And then for one of the main barriers for me when learning that stuff is that, uh, uh, great, now you have an experience, um, but you have to then get people to put that on their phone independently uh, to be able to experience it. So that's a lot of barriers in terms of just making it accessible to the masses kind of thing but yeah so yeah you're learning uh you're teaching yourself that uh, or what uh, have you been able to be mentored or to have some some help with that or what is that well it's funny you ask me that because i have a pet peeve when people say this if you're learning if you're teaching yourself that because all learning is self-taught a teacher can only facilitate learning but you have to teach yourself Okay, well, we'll get, we'll get back to that when we talk about mentorship, too. I'm going to ask you about that next. So I'm using Cinema 4D and uh, ZBrush. And oh, I don't even know those. Okay, what are of, those? So they're 3D, they're 3D uh, making software. Right. ZBrush is specialized in 3D modeling and sculpting. And then Cinema 4D is more animation and video production. Is that stuff free? No, it's not free. It's pretty expensive. But... If you're a student, you can get a student version for, I think, two year, a two-year le- license. I'm not going to hide it that there are a lot of cracks on the internet that can allow you to get the free version. So are you 3D, you're 3D scanning stuff too in your environment? 3D scan, a 3D sculpt. Yeah, so for the 3D scanning, I have something called a structure sensor. Structure sensor? A, yep. And it's a little device that you can put on your phone, but... It's recommended to put it onto iPads because iPads, I guess, have a bigger processing RAM. The sensor structure is about $600. Um, so it's on the cheaper end of 3D scanners. And it, it's really great. You can also 3D scan for 3D printing directly. So it has the ability to close holes if there are some. So it's pretty great. I bring it into ZBrush, which is where I will fix the what they call the mesh, which is like the the skin or like, you know, the attributes of the object. And so I will fix it up just in case certain things don't look properly. And then from there, I'll bring it into Cinema 4D because this is what I know. So this is my process that I know. I'm now learning. Also, sorry. So in terms of how I'm learning a lot of these things, I'm using LinkedIn. LinkedIn has online courses because LinkedIn bought out lynda.com. And so as a student, I have access to a lot of these online courses and uh, tutorials, but YouTube's my best friend, to be honest. And then I also 
get a lot of support from online forums for each of these softwares. I will ask questions or I'll just look up like on the forums if someone else asks those questions. So once again, being a lot part of the larger conversation. Well, yeah, let's talk about those forums for a second, because, yeah, those forums uh, can also be kind of difficult and, and, and chaotic and sometimes can be used in bad ways. So where are the forums that you're accessing that you're not finding that are really time consuming in terms of sifting through other people's questions that are similar to yours, but actually finding folks who are able to answer them? Well, my first go to places for all softwares is the forums that the software manufacturers provide, because I already know those are curated they, you know, overlook them to make sure people are not saying anything that's, you know, problematic or make sure, you know, they respect co- copyrights and all these different things. So those are usually the first places I go to. And plus they have the FAQ, so frequently asked questions. So, you know, a lot of times it cuts to the chase. Awesome. Okay, cool. So now you're in Cinema 4D. What are you doing in Cinema 4D? Yeah, so in Cinema 4D, that's where I will touch things up even further in regards to making sure that it will be able to be used in Unity because Cinema 4D has a direct pipeline. So pipeline means it directly connects to Unity. So it directly connects to certain software, so it makes it easy to send things back and forth. And uh, in Cinema 4D, that's where I often will fix texture. And I would fix the material that I would use for the 3D scans or for the 3D objects. Again, I now know that I can do that in ZBrush but ZBrush doesn't have a direct pipeline to Unity. So is ZBrush cheaper or what's the advantage? Difficult. Oh my gosh, ZBrush is hell expensive, very expensive. It's probably the one of the most expensive software. Um, so why would you use it, it instead amazing. of Cinema 4D? It's easier. So it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Photoshop and Illustrator. Just to break that down, Photoshop uses pixels per inch meaning it uses these square little boxes to create an image, whereas Illustrator uses dot per inch, which are literally points. It's like a pointillism if you think of like painting. And so what makes the difference is that dots per inch is data. It is numbers that makes up these dot per inch. So a vector can be blown up for infinity. As strong as your as your, as powerful as your computer is, you can blow up a vector, right? Because it's it's just using data. It's just using points. Whereas a pixel is limited to how many the square. Yeah, it can only be stretched so square. far. Yeah, yeah, it can only stretch so far before you start losing quality. And so ZBrush basically adopts the the DPI, but within a three D sense. Oh, cool. Yeah. So then you can get really, really detailed 3D structures. You know, you can really get high detail and like really, really, really go in. But it's all depending on the power of your computer and then what you want your output to be, right? So this is what I love about Cinema 4D um, in comparison to other softwares like Maya or 3ds Max or Blender. Cinema 4D has numerous animation options so i can do the timeline animation i can do the stop motion i can do also keyframe i can also uh program it like how you do in maya i can program it to say um at this point i can i want it to do x y and z move point all these different things you know more of a coding programming language and coding coding, right and are you sourcing that that open source code online or are you actually no i don't i don't get into that i don't know yeah 
that, that's I will pay someone to do that. Yeah, you don't always need to know all of the uh, all of the things, right? <laughs> uh, as I was told from a mentor, great artists delegate. Mm, yes. Yeah, and I, it took me a while to wrap my mind around that, and also to let go of control and let go of uh, this is my baby, this is me, I gotta do everything, and uh, really learn how to step into the mind state of like. How do I actually attain greatness to really get the ideas that I want um, the way I want it to look? And and sometimes I have to delegate that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like the internet facilitates like peer-to-peer mentorship um, and self-education even more than ever. What do you think then? What is, what is the role of the educator or the mentor? If we're going to be honest about it, the role of the mentor and the teacher is to make learning attractive and make you want to choose how you want to learn and if you're going to allow yourself to learn. But no matter what, you have, like the learner, the student, has to teach himself to be able to receive the knowledge that's being given. And so what I mean by that is I'm dyslexic. And I realized really quickly that I also have ADD. But now what they call ADHD. So that's that's two combinations that it's common, but also it's just like, it's hectic, right? Because one triggers the other, you know? I might be reading a text, and then it starts moving, and then my mind moves, you know? Or my mind starts drifting, and then the text is no longer, is not even legible to me anymore. And so it's like, okay, so then at that point, what is this the only way I can learn? Is this the only way I can now receive knowledge, you know? And so in my learning theory class, which I'm greatly appreciated for because now it gives me the language to speak on these things, is the role of the teacher and the educator to now use different tactics and different methodologies, or sorry, different ways and approaches for now the student to now remain engaged. So before, for a very long time, we talked about learning styles, right? And now we realize that there's no such thing as a learning style. It's just your learning preference because there's no one way that you learn, right? You can't say that this person's an audible learner because then you know, you're making an assumption that the only way that the person can learn in every situation in life is through audible. It's like, no. So it's about ways of learning. Yeah. And so now the mentor is now using their experience and their knowledge and their wisdom and understandings to now use that to be attractive to now mentor you. Right? So and it's so like, how do you do that? How I does can't, that- yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I was, I was going to give the example of, like, uh, people who tried to mentor me. And I'm like, yo, you're whack. You're boring, bro. Like, I know you know stuff, but, like, I can't listen to you because what you're telling me is not in a way that's interesting to me. And so for me, I think about my students. What's interesting to my students? And it's really important to know your students, to know your demographic, to know who you're speaking to and how you should speak to them. And so for uh, for me... Afrofuturism is that that ticket for me because there's so many entry points for all type of learners and all type of students, no matter if your ethnic background or where you come from, because someone has some way to relate to superheroes. Someone has some way to relate to science fiction or fantasy or some type of folklore story or something that has to do with monsters. Everyone knows a story about monsters or about, you know, uh, childhood fairy tale you know everyone has one 
for example, the Bible. I know some people will get mad at me, but, you know, a lot of it is science fiction because it hasn't been proven, right? So, I mean, so there's so many different entry points that Afrofuturism offers. And so for me, I always take in, in mind who is my audience and what are the different ways I can connect to them, right? So am I using behaviorism, meaning that I'm going to show you this, and if you don't like it, something's going to happen because you don't like it. So I'm forcing you to engage with the material. No, that's not my way, you know? But that's been the way for so long. Quentin, you're not reading your text. Take a time out. And so now, next time, Quentin's looking like he's reading his text, but he's actually drawing pictures, or he's imagining stick fighters in his head, you know? Did I learn anything? No. But did it look like I'm learning something? Maybe. So I take the connectivism approach, you know? So it's like, how does this content connect to the individual? And then how do they use it in a real in a real life situation, you know? So then it's like, now it's like, I'm allowing a student to also be a teacher. Where have you found the most love online and the most love for what you're doing? Instagram has been really nice to me. <laughs> but uh, I guess it's weird to say this out loud, but I've been told to say this more and to own it and to not be ashamed of it. And so I'm going to go ahead and say it. It may sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but it is what it is. As one of the leading Afrofuturists in Canada and in the world, a lot of the community is amongst the top Afrofuturist uh, scholars and theorists. And so a lot of my conversations and engagements are with other Afrofuturists. And so I don't really concern myself per se, with those who don't get the work. Right. Unless they're my potential students. I want to say potential students, I mm. mean, unless I'm potentially going to be doing a workshop in your space where I can allow the work to then do what it's meant to do, mm. which is educate. Yeah, and expand the conversation, bring, fo- bring folks in on... And expand the conversation, yeah. And so are there a lot of Afrofuturists on Instagram? Is that where they are? Are they on Twitter? Are they on where... where are, are... I mean, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Yeah, of course. But is that where you see some exciting stuff happening within those communities or those conversations? For me, because I deal with visual content, and so I'm mostly looking at who are the other Afrofuturists outside of the scholars who I'm peers with at this point who are dealing with visual content. And so Instagram is a great way to, to find those folks or continue to engage with those folks and to keep up to date. But I mean... There's tons of folks on Twitter who is doing stuff, but Twitter, I don't like Twitter. That's not my thing. I have a strong distaste for Facebook. <laughs> so, yeah. What, when Instagram did you, ha- when did you get right your now. distaste for Facebook? Or did, always or? Always, yeah, always. I didn't, even, I didn't even create my Facebook account. Mm, ah. my, my best friend at the time created the account for me. And he's like, yeah, it's a great way to keep in touch. Da, 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 da. And I was like, sure, sure, sure. And I just didn't like this whole, like, people up in my private life. And also, I, I don't want to see people's private lives, you know? Like, that's not my interest. That's not right. that's not for me. Right. Because I'm old school in the sense of, like, I like to... If you want to know what's going on in my life, you either come see me or pick up the phone and call me, you know? And, uh, yeah, I just I didn't like this accessibility. Right. I didn't like, like anyone can access. Yeah type of thing and then also but I didn't want to seem like I'm a closed off person so that's why I kept my page open 
which for me goes back to COVID and this whole thing of why I'm so appreciative of it because people are now realizing, well, people that I know, uh, so I don't want to generalize, but a lot of folks are realizing that I know that they can't live online and you can't continue to use it to distract yourself from real life things. Because at a certain point, you're going to feel like you're being drained. At a certain point, you're going to feel like it's too much. At a certain point, you're going to be like, I need to take a break. And it's, it's kind of crazy. It's, it's really interesting to me that some folks are finding it more tiresome. They're like, mm-hmm. yo, I'm more tired being at home <laughs> than when I was like, you know, living a regular life. And it's like, because you're consuming so much content so much. And it's overlooked. Is there anywhere if you you know if you've had a great experience so far with Instagram, then that's great. I'm not trying to like diss Instagram or diss or like you know to pull apart that experience. But is there other places where artists are less controlled by the elements of only so many words or only only a minute or whatever that you're that you're loving and that are even better that you want to let people know about? And I'm not really online like that, and I I'm, I'm working towards it because I'm seeing why it's important, but also for my students and and for people to see what I'm doing and or see what I've done and, and also just archiving it. So Deviant Art is really great. Art Station is really great. For my 3D stuff, I'm starting to use a website called Sketchfab. Sketchfab. So, yeah. And so a lot of these places are really great. But I, I always say I'm a really fortunate artist who still believes in a real life experience and even though I may not have a huge following on social media people come out to my events and it's like once I'm doing something in real life people respond you know and I yeah I really enjoyed that more than anything so if it ain't broke don't try to fix it you know what I mean so I'm not trying to rely on creating an online presence if I have a real life presence already I do see the value of creating and developing the online presence more, but it's not my focus. It's not like where I put all my energy into. I put my energy into creating real life experience. And what's your favorite city then within that? Because I know you've traveled a lot and stuff. So where do you feel the most loved? Where's the events that you're like, oh, I'm in this city. Yeah, I get to see my favorite people. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, man, that's a good question. Mm, there's a big, bright, big uh, smile on your face. <laughs> 100% Berlin. I love Berlin. It's uh, one of my top places to go, and I've been there twice now, and uh, I'm really, really excited to go back again, um, which is why I was, I'm so bummed about the fellowship, taking that dip. Um, I was so excited. I was like, oh, my gosh, yeah. I created a lot of great friendships, but just really great contacts there, but then also the way they engaged with Afrofuturism there was so beautiful, but also provided so much growth. Wouldn't think Afrofuturism Berlin, but all right. Oh man, it's huge. Hmm. It's huge. Yeah, it's it's really big because there's so many Mm Afro-Europeans. And so that conversation is really unique, right? And a lot of people, and also, you know, Italian futurism and German futurism is so different, right? Yeah. Because they took a fascist approach. Mm. And so Afrofuturism is not linked to power structures and not linked to propaganda in any type of way. So a lot of people are interested in that and also contrasting it to decolonize their histories, right? Yeah, and to undo, like, well, not undo, but to start their process of healing, right? So 
um, Germany was really dope for that. And also, they just have a lot of history of embracing African and black scholars. Sun Ra was huge in, in Germany. He loves Germany, actually. He speaks about it very highly. Kwame Nkrumah, like a lot of, a lot of folks. Um, and then W.E. Du Bois also did his fellowship there and stuff. So, so when I went, it was for the 100th anniversary of the Comet, which was considered as one of the first Afrofuturist and black sci-fi content um, created. And uh, so, yeah, Berlin, Havana was amazing. Went to Havana three times, and uh, it just blows my mind every time I go there, just the vibes, the history, the way they hold on to their Afrocentric identity. And it also it allows me to see the upside of communism in the sense of, like, what Fidel Castro did to really honor indigenous and African contributions to Cuba. Yeah, the monuments that are there in tributes to, like, you know, the Afro-Cubans and all that stuff. Whew. And, yeah, and then their approach to Afrofuturism is really amazing as well. Like, you know, the they call it Afrofuturismo. And so, you know, the whole Latinx um, approach in the Latin American and then also just, like, engaging with those ideas of, like, being mixed race and all these different things. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. So I've been ending most of my interviews with just a little uh, kind of lightning round style questions about people's, uh, how they use communication technologies. So not particularly in your work, because we've already talked about that, but just to purely to satisfy like my own curiosities and for listeners about, um, you know, there's so many different ways that we can communicate with each other, but there's all these like unspoken ways about how we actually don't like. So this is my little, my, my questions are these. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Emoji or GIF or even sticker maybe? GIF. Okay, you do use those a lot when you're when you're communicating with people. I love it. Text. References. What's that? I said references. You know, cross references. I love it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love the way you can actually talk reference this like moment. Um, text or phone call. Mm, text. I like talking in person, so usually the text will be like, okay, all right, right. Are you in? No. All right. right. Have a good day. Um, email or DMs? Email. Voice note or video chat? Voice note. Yeah. <laughs> I love voice notes. love voice notes. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Quinton, for talking to me today. I could just, yeah, could talk to you for hours. I wish you all the best with editing all this. Well, thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And I would just like to add yes. the last words uh -huh. is I hope everyone will take time to meditate, resolve, and elevate. And uh, remember that you are someone's ancestor and that you have a responsibility to the past and to the future. Amazing. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Make Media. Join me for the next episode when I speak with Jenny Norton about the science behind her kinetic sculptures and immersive stereoscopic experiences. Until then, stay creative and do be artists.